Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Oh, hey, that's me. Welcome. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 282. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, we've got a couple interesting conversations for you this week on the program. A little bit later on, second half of the show, we talk with New Orleans-based artist, musician, and author Peter Orr about his very scary new book, The Good People and the Bad. Up first, though, uh, this time around, a talented actor who has uh, had some ups and downs through the years and found his way to a brand new show with the feeling that he had been, in some ways, possessed by the spirit of the late Robin Williams. Roger Cabler has turned that into a one-man show that makes its New York City debut later in the month at the Triad Theater. He's also the subject of a documentary called Being Robin. Our conversation right now with Roger Cabler on Downtown. Roger, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Rich. I'm happy to be here. Can you hear me okay? I hear you. I hear you. You said uh, you had a show uh, in Canada last night? I did. I, I have to tell you, I've had nine shows, and I have five more to do on half of a, a hanging vocal cord that I have left. Um, <laughs> and it's because I get on stage, and Robin takes me for a ride, like for an hour. I'm just this meat puppet that. He pretty much, like, moves wherever he wants me to move, and a 60-year-old body doesn't do all that stuff, you know? So I have to recover. It's a period of recovery, but it's a blast, uh, and it's very unpredictable. It is channeling. Well, I, I want to talk about your backstory because it's a fascinating one. You were a very successful actor. You were on uh, the reboot of The Carol Burnett Show. You'd been on The Tonight Show. You'd done a lot of things, and then uh, you, you ran into some personal struggles along the way. That's the most fascinating part, as far as I'm concerned, and the most um, important, given recently the loss of our, one of our friends from TV who had a similar struggle, and, and I've managed to have to stop being an actor and find something else to do for a number of years. I got out of Hollywood. I, you know, I was on TV. I was in Clueless. I was the Zima guy. I did all this stuff. Um, and then it really fell apart with mental illness and drug addiction. And uh, after, you know, I've been sober for 20 years, and it's taken me a long time to get on my feet and do it again. And what brought me back into it was Robin Williams. When he passed, I felt something very deep stir and, like, a visitation. Or I just felt like he was saying, hey, let's get back to work now. Come on. And I was like, oh, no, you don't. I was never going to go on stage again, and I just felt him pulling at me like, come on, I'm not done yet. We have to do this, please. It's all right, dear. You can do it. I was like, oh, God, and I thought this would kill me, but I've been doing it for nine years. It hasn't killed me yet. I'm still doing it, and I'm still sober. So now, yes, there's a movie, and I'm going off Broadway. If I have my my one vocal cord will function. <laughs> Well, I, I have seen clips of the show, and and it's absolutely phenomenal. And to say to say impressionist, I, I don't think does it justice because from what I saw, uh, I mean, you become Robin Williams. Well, that's what people were saying last night after the show, and thank you for saying that. Um, I just get out of the way. Robin says, "Okay, you sit down here. I go now," and I just let him do 
That's why my voice is so raggedy. It's so much intense energy that comes through me that I have to, it's almost like an athletic event. I have to be in amazing shape um, mentally too. It's, it's exhausting to try to think like Robin, the way his mind, bing, 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 bing. It's all over the place and things happen in front of me that I, that I don't plan and things come out of my mouth that were not planned. And that's why people are like, oh my God. What the hell is going on? <laughs> it's not it's not entirely scripted, you know. It's like Mark and Mindy. It, it, it's just happening to me. I'm just getting out of the way and allowing it. Well, I wonder what's that experience like for you as that uh, you know that that energy, that life force comes into you. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you just sort of surrender and let it go? Yeah, when it's good, it's like a really good drug, baby. You know, it's like <laughs> wicked a circus of endorphin rush. It's like an incredible high. So for the hour that I do Robin, um, and it's not all rapid fire, I transform into something different, another version of Robin, which becomes more profound with a humanitarian message. Because after all the naughty stuff, and this is Doubtfire's heavily involved in trying to keep him right during the show. It's like in between rounds of a boxing match. Mrs. Doubtfire's there going, oh, you have to do something profound now, dear. You know, and oh, come on, we're having a good time. Come on. And she's like, oh, look, they're, they're, getting, they're getting turned off by all of your naughtiness. And I'm like, no, they're not. They're having a ball. And so we go back and forth. And finally, she gets me to open up to why I came there in the first place, which is why I believe, you know, we're doing this. And what would Robin say if he was back here, but what's going on? And it's not a bummer. It's pretty funny, but it has to do with love and laughter and some sex. And, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an older Robin saying, hey, I'm always here, okay? I'll always be here for you. You're the reason that I got up in the morning, and you're the reason that I came back, because I love you. And I think by then people are crying. I started crying last night, too, because I love Robin. He's just like, I don't know, the first time I saw him, I go, oh, my God, that's me. He got there first. <laughs> but now he's sort of using me like, I don't know, in some weird way. Sorry, I'm not giving you a chance to talk. No, 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 no. listen, people can hear me talk every day. They want to hear They want to hear you talk. Well, uh, and I, I want to mention, too. So, it's, you know, it's a manic trip, man. <laughs> well, the, it's life. a perfect fit. I, I want to mention, um, Cindy Williams was a dear friend of our show, and, and I know uh, she oh, had a chance. Really? Yeah, and she had a chance yeah. to see you, and, and she it sounded like she was yeah. so moved by what you did. She actually came to the first performance that I ever did. It was a salon performance at uh, Vicki Abelson's house in L.A., and she was promoting her book there. She was in the audience, and she hugged me real tight. She was um, Shirley and Laverne and Shirley, and she was good friends with Rob, and they did laughing together, as a matter of fact, mm. the reincarnation of that. And uh, I felt like an old showbiz. So there we were. We were at Cantor's Deli, and we were enjoying a nice connection. <laughs> and she grabbed, and no, but she grabbed me, and she said, I feel Robin. Mm. And I said, thank you. That was what I hope that we can do this. And that kind of launched me into doing this for nine years. Um, I don't see any stopping either. We're going off Broadway. And she's gone now, too, which makes me very sad. I loved her. She, she, she was a sweetheart. I loved her. Well, like, so you knew her really well, right? 
Well, you know, she was on our show a, a few times, and we, we would have lengthy conversations when she was on, yeah. and just the just the sweetest person in the world. What so, a bench. Oh, God. Oh. Loved her. So, Roger, what did, what, did Ro, what did Robin mean to you when you were younger, and what does he mean to you now? It's a really good question. Um, it's a good chance for me to mention my movie, Being Robin, um, which explains that it's doing film festivals. It's winning awards. It's not really for sale, but if you want to, I will hook it up by giving you my email address. And then I can send it to you privately, Ooh. like ten dollars for the DVD, and I'll sign it. And someday it'll be worth ten dollars. <laughs> but I can't sell it online right now because I'm doing all these film festivals. It's a no-no. But what he means, oh man, for some reason it's almost like I felt possessed by him when I first saw him. Like I said, I said, oh, "That's me." I felt an immediate identification and also an envy, like. This guy got there before I did. I completely understood him and how he worked. And I I put him into my act when I started doing impressions. He was a part of my act um, for years. And I even remember being in high school, being all well, being kind of shy, you know, hey, want to go on a date with me? Okay. You know, I just kind of had that weird behavior already in my body and it was already there. You know how, like, we emulate people? Mm. You have somebody you emulate and you kind of act like, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, And Robin Williams was one of them when I was young. And, and uh, oh, you know, I had times really? doing theater through the years when I would have people say, geez, you remind me yeah. a little of Robin Williams. I mean, the ultimate compliment. It kind of is. But then you study his life and he's been through so much. And I, I too, went through the drug addiction, uh, bipolar couple marriages, all kinds of similarities. I, he was like a brother. And when he passed, something really powerful happened to me. I, I am an empath. And I felt that he was visiting. His spirit was, you know, taking, uh, took me for a ride. And, uh, you know, I don't want to bring people down, but I was walking through the woods not that long after he passed because I kind of experienced his death. Um, in a first-hand way, it was horrible. And I remember thinking, this is what it likes to be Robin Williams and lose that. And I was walking in the woods, and just out of my mouth, I wasn't thinking about him. I was just enjoying and walking the woods in winter. And out of my mouth came, I miss my kids. And I'm like, oh, my God, what is going on? So the reason I'm bringing this up is because I wanted to make a joyous movie and a joyous show to celebrate him. But I really think in order to get to that, you have to go through a little bit of dark and a little deep, you know, areas to understand the need for the light. And that's just life. It's a battle of light and dark. But but I went through that darkness until, hey, let's get to work. Let's make people laugh again. Come on. And I was like, okay, how can I turn down Robin Williams? How can I say no to Robin Williams? <laughs> what if I'm crazy? Yeah, but what if it's real? Oh, damn, we have to make a movie now. You know, it's just kind of how it went down. 
Well, when I think of Robin, too, I think about somebody who who respected the audience, loved the audience so much. And, oh, and that's the sad yeah. part of the story is that you know, we didn't get all that we wanted of Robin Williams because of his untimely passing. And and I don't know that he yeah. got as much uh, of the love that he wanted to get from the audience. And, and so this show, I, I feel like from what I've seen, it gives people an opportunity to uh, to get some, but also to give some back. Yeah, and that's that's really the, the the connection and the the communion of comedy anyways. It's not killing and dying. It's loving, it's giving, it's receiving, it's so much more. They have those even Robin said, You kill or you die. And I think it's so much more give you this, I'm gonna tickle you oh and it's sexual and it's I'm gonna you know, I can't say things right now but on the radio but I do. It's a, he's a very sexual, as you know. And if you watch his stuff, his, a lot of stuff was about sex. And I, I try to lighten it up for audiences. But he would not have been happy for people to grieve him the way they do. I think this is an unacceptable end to his life. And so part of what I'm doing is saying, if you think of me, be happy. I forget all the grief. You can grieve. But really, the the most part of me was to what the biggest part of Robin was making people happy. And I think part of what I'm doing is to give them back Robin and people write to me all the time saying, thank you for bringing him back. And I'm like, Hey baby, it's a gig, you know, <laughs> I'm a method comedian. I practice, believe me. But then at some point after you conjure it, it takes over and it's, then I can't control it. Like right now I feel a little bit out of control. Could be the coffee. I don't know. <laughs> uh, the show, again, premieres off-Broadway, the Triad Theater in New York, November 25th at 7 p.m. Uh, if you get a chance to see the movie, Being Robin, make sure you do that and, and look for Roger's one-man show as he becomes Robin Williams, uh, if it comes to oh, a, a stage you. near you. Roger, we wish you uh, continued good luck oh, with the show, and thanks so much for visiting with us. Thank you very much. You have all the information for the triad uh, in case? I sure do, absolutely. Okay. Hey, this was wonderful. Thank you. You had great questions. I appreciate you, man. Well, thank you for being on with us. We wish you well, and uh, yeah, hope you're less ragged uh, when you're on stage, but I have a feeling once you hit that stage, the raggedness <laughs> disappears and the magic begins. It'll be okay by, by the, my next show tomorrow night. There you go. Fine. All right, rest up. Thank you, Roger. Okay, thank you so much. That's Roger Cabler talking about his one-man show honoring, channeling Robin Williams. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance, and when we come back, the multi-talented Peter Orr. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. I should laugh, but I cry Because your love has passed me by You took me by surprise You didn't realize But I was waiting Back here on Downtown... Our next guest, a multi-talented musician, artist, 
and a writer who's got a brand new book out that'll scare the bejeepers out of you. It's called The Good People and the Bad. We had a chance to talk about it recently with Peter Orr here on Downtown. Well, uh, I've enjoyed your work. I really loved it. Actually, Carrie uh, gave me a copy of Stay Out of New Orleans several months ago, and I, I love that book. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's uh, that's good advice, if nothing else. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I especially like the uh, the story of the author, uh, P. Curran, of course, billed as the author of Stay Out of New Orleans, and then uh, revealed there that uh, he was unmasked as Peter Orr, an unpopular nightclub entertainer. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's being kind. <laughs> yeah, people didn't know. The, the name P. Curran, I, I write through pen names a lot. I, I just always have, I guess, because I worked in magazines. But um, I'd been using that name, P. Curran. It turns out since the 80s, I didn't realize that. Somebody sent me a, an example of something I'd published with that name in the 80s. It's my grandmother's uh, maiden name, Curran. Oh, nice. So, and well, and so the new book is credited to, uh, uh, was it Shay Leitrim? Leitrim? What's, what's the story there? Shay Leitrim. Well, um, the, the immediate thing is that this book is so horrid, I didn't want my pen name to be on it either. Um, Leitrim is a county in Ireland that's actually, I, it's it's very close to where the, uh, where the legend that the book is based on comes from. And I use the name Shay. I think, uh, I, I think I was trying to keep, uh, keep it indefinite so that people couldn't tell if this was a, a male or female author. Although I think once you read the book, you can tell it's a guy wrote it, you know? Well, I did not know what to expect uh, after reading Stay Out of New Orleans, and, and this was nothing like that. But man, oh man, so we meet uh, we meet Eddie O'Kane, uh, a young guy who uh, all of a sudden finds himself in 1978, a world uh, I remember pretty well. I was about the same age as Eddie was uh, back in 1978. And uh, then things things begin to go wrong very quickly, and it's one bad choice after another for him. Yes, that's exactly it. And he's, uh, he's actually based on, he's inspired by a character named Teague O'Kane, or Taig O'Kane, an Irish character. But they weren't as specific in what you did wrong in, in Irish folk tales. You know, we are used to, we want to know why somebody's evil, so I had a show, you know. And he's, yeah, he's pretty, he's a sad luck case, I'll tell you that. But yeah, it just gets worse and worse as he goes along. One of the things I, I liked about the book, I, I teach high school students, and you did such a great job of uh, capturing the way they the way they speak, the way they interact with each other. Yeah, I, I really thought at the time, you know, I wanted this to be horrifying. The scariest thing that had ever happened to me was going to high school. So at that point, <laughs> that's what I used. And uh, it's, it's, it's very claustrophobic, I think, you know. Yeah, it's it's that. And, and I, boy, I found it to be also pretty cinematic, too. Although if, if it were a movie, I would probably hide under the seats. Uh, you know, from your lips to God's ears. Yeah, I'd love to see this be made into a movie. But, uh, yeah, it's, if it is, it'll be heavy on effects. Oh, no question. Uh, back in, in the 80s, I was uh, managing editor at Fangoria, which was a mm. horror movie magazine. It was the biggest horror movie magazine there ever was. Right. And uh, so I, I'm 
very much see things through that lens of like horror movies are supposed to have lots of practical effects made out of latex and looking really gross. So there's lots of opportunities for that. <laughs> there are indeed. We're talking with Peter Orr here on Downtown. His new book is called The Good People uh, and the Bad. What what makes for good horror from your perspective? Well, it's not something that's going to boil down into uh, an easy recipe. One of the things I think you notice if you look at horror movies over time is that the term horror movie gets applied to different things. You know, there are different it's different subject matter. We don't wind up with the same thing coming back over and over what a lot of a lot of people object to horror movies based upon the ones they see at one particular time. A good example would be in the 80s. Nobody wanted to see these, you know, you, you had all these slasher movies and everybody was trying to distance themselves from them. But the real problem with it is really just that it gets boring. Once you've seen, once you've seen a Friday the 13th type movie, you, you're not going to sit through a second one. You know, your foot, you're sitting there tapping your toe the whole time. Whereas you see those suddenly it'll become popular. We've seen a bunch of um, folk horror movies in recent years. And then that, it's just you've got to keep coming up with uh, you got to keep coming up with. I guess it's the element of surprise, but it's got to come at younger audiences because they're really important to horror. They bring an energy to it, you know, and you just got to keep surprising them. And you're not going to do it with the thing that scared, you know, people just five or ten years older than them. Well, you, know, you got to keep throwing curveballs. Well, and, and you sure did in this book. And well, a couple of things that I really liked. One is that there was, even as a lot of bad things were happening, there was a sense a sense of normalcy. I think made up by the people that Eddie encountered along the way, and that that helped to make it extra scary because you could relate, you could see yourself in those situations. And then when, um, and I don't want to give anything away here, no spoilers, but when. When Eddie faces the consequences of his actions, yeah. I did not see that coming at all. Yeah, that comes right from my grandmother, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> I had a grandmother who was off the boat, and uh, she absolutely believed in those things. She absolutely believed in, you know, the, the cliché sort of. It, it's not quite the not quite the way it ends up on American television, but the People from Ireland of her generation really believed that was that these things were possible. So uh, it, somehow it just floated into me. I don't know. Well, I've got I those Irish roots myself. Feet. Maybe that's why it scared me so much because I was I was thinking of my ancestors in Ireland. Yeah, that could be. That's absolutely. I'm, you're, you're really warming my heart here, Rich. <laughs> really, I'm glad to hear that. I have to say, I've been worried that that the book isn't scary. Oh, you know? <laughs> and I think I'm glad to hear I'm glad to hear a vote, an objective vote that says I need not worry about that. No, I, I thought it was it, it was very scary, but also it to me the best kind of scare, which is you know not the not always the the jump cut kind of scare, um, but the scare that uh, where the the skin sort of crawls, the hair stands up on the back of your neck, and things just. Things just don't feel right as you're reading that book. And boy, when you can convey that in a book, it's I think it's easier to do that in a movie because you've got that visual experience, you've got sound, you've got music. When you can do that mm -hmm. in a book, boy, you're onto something. 
Wow, thanks. I'm glad you really, you know, this is this really makes me feel good to hear you say that. It's true. Um, the other thing is that with a movie, people are people can just keep sitting there, so you can you can bank on getting away with it not working a little bit. Whereas with a book, once once people get bored, they put the book down and it doesn't come back up. They don't read it again. You know what I mean? Once a book has bored you into mm. putting it down, you're it's you know an act of Congress won't get you to pick it back up. Well, what what I did with the book was um, I, I read it in in two sittings. I, I wanted to read it all in one, but I knew I would get I would have horrible horrible sleep if I <laughs> if I continued to do that. So I did it in two segments, but I I couldn't put it down one because I wanted to find out what was going to happen, but the other because I was scared out of my wits and I didn't want to shut off the light. Oh, I should be quoting you on the cover. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was trying to go. I'll tell you, one of the things that I'd been learning right before that, because this was the, I actually wrote this book in uh, 1994. Um, and it just wasn't, I, first of all, the, the horror publishers at that time just put a hand right up at me when I came at them with this book. Were, no, this is, we don't want to publish this. But, um one of the things about it was that I'd been studying uh, Jim Thompson, the crime writer, the guy who wrote oh, yeah. Getaway, mm. things like that. And it, it just was mystifying to me. How could he write these novels that would make me want to sit and read them all in one day, read the whole thing in one day? How did he do that? And so I, I was really trying for that with this book. And I didn't think I'd made it. I didn't think this book would make you want to sit it and read it that quickly. But uh, it seems it seems to be doing okay. People seem to be having responded to it that way, like you're saying. You know, like you could do this in one sitting. Oh, there's no question it's about it. It's good for a plane trip, you know. Oh yeah, and, uh, and that's funny you mentioned. That's where I that's where I read the first half was on a plane. Really? Yeah. Well, that's an endorsement. <laughs> uh, but then I thought, hey, you know, I gotta, I gotta fly home, and it's gonna be late at night, and I'm gonna be thinking of these things as I come in the house. So I waited until I got back home to read the second half in the, in the comfort uh, and relative safety of my home. Well, you're in Maine. Maine has a long, noble history of of horror stories, so. That's the best place to be reading it. Oh, I, I think so. There. So I, I'm wondering, Peter, because you do so many uh, artistic, uh, creative things. Do they all sort of, uh, do they all scratch a different artistic itch for you? Yes, I think you're right. I, I do think that's true. I don't really have that much control over what I do. I'm, I'm kind of driven to it. I certainly create out of psychological need, but I don't get to pick. Which one, like I'll set time away and say, okay, I'm going to paint next week. And somehow I'll go through that whole week without painting anything. But then I'll get an editorial deadline where I have to have something ready three weeks from now. And suddenly I can't get away from the easel. And uh, I don't know what it is. I think with music, it was easier to get me to stick to things because I had this that, you know, I had to go to these clubs and be performing at these specific times. And it's also just very easy for me to sit around with an instrument in my hands, you know, whereas, you know, to actually write and to actually paint, I, I have to be self-starting and the part of me that starts it, I am not in charge of. It just 
extends me on its own. I do have to tell you that uh, I went back to reread a couple things uh, to make sure I, I had my thoughts in order. And I, I, again, I don't want to give it away, but you'll know what I'm talking about. I was reading a specific part of the book that I found incredibly harrowing. And at just about the right moment or the wrong moment, my dog let out this big yawn that Cohen. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'll be honest with you. When I went to write this, at the outstart of it, I had the idea that I I'm, I'm wanted to write a Stephen King book. <laughs> I mean, you can kind of see that, and it's like the Stephen King books that I was reading in high school in the late 70s. It's similar to the things that he was doing then. It's not. I'm not saying it's similar in that it's as good, but it's obviously inspired by those things. And, um, and he will, has spoken a number of times about how He'll have something that he puts in the book, and then he dreads having to write it, and then he dreads having to rewrite it. That definitely happened. Oh, I wow. I not want to rewrite that <laughs> scene. And it, there's a couple of them in there that I, I, you know, you'd be sitting there going, all right, tomorrow night I'm going to get up to that part with blah, blah, blah. And, I, I, you know, it's just typing. I'm just going to type it. You know? <laughs> it, it's, it is harrowing. Well, I don't know. You know, because you're scaring yourself right, at that right. point. And you don't know that anyone else is ever going to see it. Well, it, you're doing that. You do, I mean, you go between thinking no one else will ever read this thing I'm working on and, oh, the whole world is going to see this and they're going to be teaching it in high schools, you know? Well, it scared the hell out of me, and it's one of those books that stays with you, too. You you don't put it down and forget it. You keep thinking back on uh, on several of the characters in the book and uh, and their fate along the way. Oh, wow. You know, again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to quote you on the cover. <laughs> oh, my, my designer immediately. I'm glad to hear that. I wanted to kind of stick with you because when people – when you give people something that they can use to scare themselves with, they remember it, you know, and it, it inspires lifelong loyalty for having done that. I mean, there are things that I scared myself with back in the, the early 70s that I, you know, I get into arguments with people to defend it. You know, it really gets a kind of loyalty because it's, it's such a personal thing. And I think it surprises us when we get somebody else can help us scare ourselves mm -hmm. when we're alone. Well, it's you terrific. Know? The book is called The Good People and the Bad. How can uh, good or bad people get their hands on a copy, Peter? Well, at this point, it's definitely online. I don't know. Um, it's, it's up on Amazon. It's up on the services. One thing I'm noticing, though, when you put in the title, I'm going to have to have, have a, a, a net guy come in here, an IT guy come in and fix this. But when you put in the title, The Good People and the Bad, it keeps giving you all these self-help books about when bad things happen to good people. <laughs> so you have to put the name Shay Leitrim in with it. You have to type in, like if you go on Amazon and you hit the search window, you put the title, but also put Shay, S-H-E-A, and Leitrim, which is a county in Western Ireland where my family comes from, L-E-I-T-R-I-M. But yeah, that's, that's where it is for now. And it's also... It's available um, through bookstores, so if you order it, you, you, they're not going to just carry it everywhere, but if you go in and you order it at your bookstore, they will order it through their, their services. The book is many things. I would, I would not describe it as a self-help book, though. 
No, no, it's not. It does not sit well with those <laughs> at all. But I, it's, it was kind of surprising to me. I get, you know, again, I'm being really solipsistic. But when I put the thing in and saw that coming up, I was like, no, that's not. Mm-mm. That's not. Uh, that's not going to be recommended alongside that. Well, I, I enjoy uh, getting getting scared like nobody's business and reading the good people and the bad. And, and it's great to talk with you, Peter. I really appreciate you making some time for us today and wish you good luck oh, with the, my pleasure. the book. I'm glad Kerry got us together. It's what he does. That's indeed what he does. I just saw him recently, actually. I really like that guy. He is all right. We, we like him, know, too. He is, he's become more or less my neighbor <laughs> in uh, recent weeks. So, you know, but still, still, you know, available to all of us. Absolutely. Well, uh, Peter, thanks again. Good talking with you. I hope we can do it again down the road. Thank you so much, Rich. I look forward to it. It's been great. That's Peter Orr talking about his new book, The Good People and the Bad. Our thanks to Peter. Thanks to Roger Cabler. And of course, to you for joining us every week on Downtown, which is produced by Kerry Haskell and brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.